Blooming Lotus Yoga presents Drops of Nectar with Ramananda Mayi. In this podcast, we share the profound wisdom of yoga, tantra, and Vedanta so that you may deepen your understanding of the Dharma and live a more fulfilling, awakened, and compassionate life. During these evening sessions, we're going to get an opportunity to do something very rare and very special. We're going to open the doors to what is known as Sri Vidya to you all. And for those of you that have been here in some context or another before, whether you've done a yoga retreat or done a teacher training or have done a meditation retreat, you may or may not be aware of that what we do here is we teach a very, very special aspect of the Vedic teachings, of the Vedic Dharma, the ancient teachings of India. And we practice and teach something known as Sri Vidya. And Sri Vidya is a very, very ancient um, lineage within the Indian meditative tradition that has a complete pathway to spiritual liberation that it has outlined. And this pathway is been practiced on planet Earth for thousands and thousands of years. And this particular lineage is very ancient, older than Christianity, older than Buddhism, far older than Buddhism, and is really part of the ancient world, something that miraculously has been able to have had an unbroken transmission for over probably 10,000 plus years. When we look into the ancient scriptures of mankind, we find that the Vedas, the ancient scriptures of India, are really the oldest thing that we have, as humanity, have inherited um, in terms of antiquity. The only thing that rival the Vedas are things that are engraved on the pyramids of, of the Egyptians. Some of those engravings that we find in Egypt are, have been carbon dated to these ancient times, 5000 BC and things like this. But when we look at the Vedas and we see what's going on inside of their timing mechanism, we can see that they existed far, far, far uh, before the times of even the Egyptians. And miracle of miracles, even in this day we find the Vedas practiced and, and taught. And so what I would like to present to you in these evening sessions to help enrich your own spiritual journey and understand the deeper context of how and why we are practicing meditation is I'd like to just introduce you to what is known as Arsha Vidya. Arsha Vidya. Arsha Vidya is basically synonymous with Vedic knowledge. The, the word itself originates from the word Rishi. And a rishi in Sanskrit just means an enlightened sage. It's equivalent to the word Buddha or an enlightened one, an awakened one. And for, uh, for grammar reasons, for various syntax purposes, they change the word rishi and they make it into arsha when they pair it with the word vidya, which means knowledge. And Lily and I, as well as many of the people that uh, teach at Blooming Lotus, basically the framework of what we teach originates from the ancient rishis of India. And the ancient rishis of India had put into motion um, this great body of knowledge um, known as the Vedas. They were the originators, as it were, of the Vedas on planet Earth. It is said that the Vedas themselves are without human origin. In Sanskrit, they're known as Aparusheya. It means that there was no human person that uh, composed the Vedas or created the Vedas. The Vedas are said to be without a human origin. 
So there's no one single personality. There's no Christ, there's no Muhammad, there's no Buddha, no Mahavira, no Lao Tzu, no nobody of, of, of a quality that we can say as an individual was there that gave us the Vedas. Simply in ancient Indian oral tradition, it's accepted that in a far distant past, these enlightened beings um, incarnated on planet Earth entered deep states of meditation and from the profound experiences of enlightenment that they had within their meditation, they're able to perceive or hear these sacred mantras um, that form the corpus of what is known as the Vedas because the Vedas are just simply composed of sound vibration, what are known as mantras. Now, the rishis of India had taught so many different things. They taught us yoga, they taught us Ayurveda, they taught us language, they taught us music, they taught us medicine, they taught us oceanography, they taught us biology, chemistry, so many different things where the rishis were expert in. And of all the things that they, they taught, one stands out as, as something very, very unique, and it's known as the Sri Vidya. Now, the Sri Vidya is a specific aspect of the teachings inside the Vedas. Now, what happened in the Vedic tradition is that, unlike other sacred world traditions, the sacred texts and the sacred teachings of the originators or the, or the originators of the various sacred traditions of the world, once their time was up, usually there was a period shortly thereafter where people would comment on the teachings, you know, conglomerate the teachings, bring them together, and then at a certain stage the door would be closed to new entries. So we find that in the current age, if one is a Christian, the King James Bible is basically your authority. And at, after a certain age, I think maybe 400 or 500 years after death of Christ, nothing else was permitted to be added there. Even though they found all sorts of other things in the Dead Sea Scrolls and this place and that place, none of that was really allowed inside of this. Within the lower school of Buddhism, for example, uh, Buddha's language was the language of Pali, similar to Sanskrit, but a little bit different. And what happened is there was some, some of the monks that followed the Buddhist teachings got together at three separate stages and the head monks of the Buddhist tradition of that time compiled all the stories, all the teachings of the Buddha that they had heard um, and decided to form a corpus of, of literature. Spoken, uh, the spoken word of Buddha written down in teachings that could be understood. But after those three sessions of these head monks getting together and deciding what was to be written down, the books were closed. So in the lower school of Buddhism, the, the door closed to any extra additions at a certain stage. In the higher school of Buddhism, or what is known as the Vajrayana or the Mahayana tradition, they allowed for other Buddhas, other enlightened sages, that took the Buddhist teachings and expounded upon it. So they modified some of the techniques, they modified some of the theory, they modified a few things, and out of that a whole new interpretation of Buddha's original teachings developed. And we find this around the world when we look at all the different world sacred traditions. Now the wonder that is the Veda is that there was never, and I don't think there ever will be, this kind of closed door policy whereby when a new enlightened being comes into the, into the picture as a world of this world existence, that their message is not revered and it's not enshrined somehow through, through, through a lineage of practitioners or through sacred texts that they may write or through an oral tradition that preserves uh, their wisdom teachings. And what has happened is 
in our tradition, some of the original rishis at the time of the Vedas gave humanity a special teaching known as the Sri Vidya. And since their time, many great sages have emerged that have expounded the same Sri Vidya. So in ancient days, one of the original of the seven great rishis that gave humanity the Vedas was known as the Shishta Maharshi. And Vashishta was one of the first sages that spoke of the Sri Vidya. He took a particularly non-dual approach to the Sri Vidya teachings for the most part. And because of his non-dual inclinations to presenting the path, he basically gave us a system of wisdom, a jnana yoga tradition of Sri Vidya. However, he was not the only one. There were many, many other sages that followed in Vashishta's footsteps. Some of them emphasized the devotional components of Sri Vidya. Others emphasized the more self-discipline and meditative tradition within Sri Vidya. Whereas others focused again on just the wisdom-based part of the tradition, the jnana-based part of the tradition. Within the Sri Vidya, as it evolved over time, certain aspects of the teachings became uh, influenced by this new set of teachings that were known as Tantra. So even though the original Sri Veda was purely Vedic in origin, we have certain elements of Tantra that we now find in the modern day that have been amalgamated with the ancient um, teachings of Sri Vidya that were purely Vedic. So in the modern age, Sri Vidya is both Vedic and Tantric kind of simultaneously. There's also another aspect of the Sri Vidya that has a heavy dose of the devotional qualities of the modern day Hindu tradition that is deeply focused on temple worship. So when we come here to Bali and we just drive around or walk around, you know, with every two minutes there's the temple. <laughs> you can't go anywhere and not see a temple. It's almost impossible. You go to somebody's house, they have a temple in their house. <laughs> They can afford to build and construct something that will build a little home for themselves and a little place where they can cook and where they can go to the bathroom. And then the next thing, they'll build the temple. Uh, however much they can afford is however big the temple will be. And the whole culture here, not only in Bali, but around Southeast Asia as a whole, and particularly places like India, there's a living temple culture that sustains the people's way of life. And back and behind the modernization, and all the materialism that we see now coming into Asia, you know, people busy running around, <coughs> driving, working, trying to make money in the modern economic kind of generation. Back and behind of all this materialism, there's this deep and rich spiritual culture, and that spiritual culture is sustained largely for the common people by the temple worship that they're engaged in. And this temple worship is preserved in a body of teachings in India known as the Agamas. The Agamas are ancient texts. They're older than the Tantras, but younger than the Vedas. Vedas are the oldest. Somewhere along the way we have the Agamas, which laid out this elaborate temple culture and how to build temples and how to worship celestial light beings inside the temples. And then some, somewhere about a thousand years ago, the Tantra teachings came, which began to emphasize the needs of the people of this generation, whereby taming desires is so much more complex than it ever was in ancient days where life was more pure and more simple. Now we have so many different forces around us and so much impurity around us and so much lack of virtue and, and goodness in the world around us and so much sensory input and the speed of life is simply so fast that learning how to manage your desires, which is really the hub of yogic training, has become 
different on some level than it was in the ancient days. And the tantric tradition emphasizes this transmutation and transformation of desire, whereas the ancient Vedic kind of approach was more, more renunciation of desire. Now, there's many different ways and different um, teachings that we have as yogis in order to understand how to practice effectively based on our own temperament. Some people do better with principles of transformation. There's other people who do better with themes of renunciation. Other people do better with themes of the negation of desires. Many, many nuances are there, and I'll do my best to dig through all of those because I was loaded with with interpretation. I'll, I'll see if I can if I can elaborate on that in the days to come. But in our study of Sri Vidya, it's important just to understand, if you've never uh, been here before, that the very words themselves are, are simple. Sri just means the supreme, the absolute. And Vidya again means knowledge. So Sri Vidya is the supreme knowledge, the supreme knowledge of spiritual liberation. Really that's what the Sri Vidya is mainly focused on. Unique within its approach is that it's able to combine the Vedic culture, the Agamic temple culture, and the Tantric influence all into one, one way of life that we as yogis can practice. And back and behind the scenes of what Blooming Lotus Yoga teaches is the Sri Vidya. We, our way of life is enshrined in the Vedic teachings and the teachings of the Rishis of India because they have given us very, very precise way of life, way of eating, way of speaking, way of uh, communicating in the world, ways of, of daily lifestyle, and ways of meditation, you know, ways of practice. And this is what we like to live and like what we like to share. <laughs> so uh, as we begin to discuss this, what I'd like to also do in this session in particular is help you frame your meditation practice um, in the proper way. Because in the modern age, meditation in the modern world is a little bit confused, I would say. They have so many meditation techniques now available to us. About 20, 30 years ago, you know, meditation was largely unknown in the West. There was a stage within in the 1990s, I think I remember a magazine, Time Magazine, is meditation dangerous. This is like the main, the main, the main title in Time Magazine, right? All the Christian people of America, all the people that were traditionalists and and a little bit afraid, they were just, what is this meditation? We don't know. Should we be afraid of it? Probably. Let's do some research into it. <laughs> right? And that was only maybe 20 years ago. I mean, it was 1995, so it's like 20 years ago, something like that. Um, <coughs> And it's just a wonder how far Western culture has come in just that 20 years. We began to do a lot of research on meditation. All the scientific research got involved in the modern last maybe 10 years. A lot of neuroscientists and people started that work on the brain started researching the benefits of meditation. And now the benefits of meditation are so wide known that, you know, is meditation dangerous? You know, as, as, an, as a title for a magazine would just be magazine article would just be absurd to most people. You know, we've come to accept so much of it. Yet, despite all the benefits that we've now heard about meditation, very few people know how to practice meditation effectively and correctly because the science of meditation is still largely unknown because the science of meditation is enshrined in tradition. It's not something you kind of make up as you go along. Yeah, it's something that serious meditators, people that are really on the spiritual journey, will rarely stray away from the teachings of the enlightened ones. In the modern age, most people, you know, from what I'm, I'm gathering, are now learning meditation through apps. 
So there's like Headspace and this app and that app, and you put a little, you know, 15 minute thing, and you press the button and somebody guides you, and it's very lovely. It gives you some benefits, and, and it makes you feel calm and relaxed and peaceful. Yet, back and behind of that, if that person has been trained correctly by their own teacher, they would have likely been part of some sort of meditative tradition. Because the beauty of meditative traditions is they have a lot of fail-safes in place that help us understand the ultimate goal of meditation. They help us understand the obstacles to meditation. They understand what to cultivate and what not to cultivate. And they help us understand also how our daily life outside of formal meditation supports or hinders our meditative practice. So there's so much to learn about meditation. One of the main things to understand about meditation is in the modern age, a lot of people are confused about the goal of meditation. Many people think meditation is simply a way of relaxing finding a little bit of inner calm, a little bit of inner peace, and they're satisfied. And for some people, that's as far as they'll get, and that's it's good enough. That's wonderful. We want to encourage that. You know, the seek, seeking relaxation so you're not so stressed out, feel, finding some level of inner peace, so important. Yet, back and behind of those motivations and those intentions is a much more noble and complete and wholesome approach to meditation, which really uses meditation as the gateway to the fulfillment of the highest awakening of the human heart. Ultimately, the aim of meditation is what we know as enlightenment. In Sanskrit, we call it moksha, or liberation, or the path to freedom. And in the modern age, when we hear the word freedom, we also get a little bit confused, because so many kinds of freedom are taught, economic, you know, financial freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of this, freedom of that, freedom of the press. So many different kinds of freedoms that people are yearning for. And by all means, we should have all of those things. It's important to have freedom of the press. It's important to have, to some degree, economic freedom. It's, it's important to have these kinds of outer luxuries. But once we have those, and I feel like most of you have all of those basic human freedoms, just the basic things that we all need to feel liberated in our external world, then we have to deal with freeing our minds from all the negative thoughts, all the negative emotions. And that becomes the great work of meditation. Ultimately, when this great work of purifying our mind of negativity is complete, enlightenment is the natural byproduct. Yeah. So ultimately, our meditation practice is really designed towards awakening the highest potential of our own life, whatever your highest ideal of perfection is. That is enlightenment. That is the state of enlightenment. Yet, the way you probably define that is a little bit more limited than what you're truly capable of. And that's also the beauty of meditation, that as you deepen your practice day after day, week after week, month, and year after year, what ends up happening is your own power, your own wisdom, your own capacity for compassion and kindness and forgiveness and all the higher virtues begins to be inexhaustible. Just when you think you've reached a plateau of how much you can give, how much you can love, how much you can care, <laughs> you know, life just shows you something else that you're possible of. Yeah, so the way most of us frame our lives and frame what we want of our lives is very, very limited compared to what will actually what our true potential really is and that true potential that meditation can foster inside of us. So this is one important thing to understand about our meditation practice. So long as we're not 
having a, the goal of enlightenment, we're really doing ourselves a great disservice. And we're not really utilizing our meditative practice in the fullest capacity that we can. The other point to understand about our motivation for meditation is that this intention to, to become self-aware or enlightened or, or spiritually free isn't being done for selfish purposes. It's not a personal pursuit. Most people, when they hear about meditation and they look at you, you know, meditating all in silence by yourself, they kind of think, hey, what are you doing, you silly person? <laughs> you know, what good are you to anybody? You're just sitting there like a vegetable doing nothing. You know, how, how are you helping anything? You're just making the situation worse, not saying anything, not doing anything to help. And that's not really how it works, because even though all of us, for the most part, most human beings have very pure hearts and, and good intentions. We want to help others. We want, you know, to give to others. We want to live noble and righteous lives, for the most part, spreading peace and harmony wherever we go. Most people are peace-loving creatures. That's generally the human conditions. Under great stress, people um, deviate. But for the most part, most people are really kind of of that nature. And because of that nature, because of that just the desire to live a peaceful life, that when we explain to people that really what we're doing by finding inner peace inside of ourselves, by cultivating wisdom within ourselves, we're actually awakening our, our potential for compassion. And so long as we hold any semblance of negativity within us, any lust, any fear, any greed, anger, anxiety, tension, stress within our body-mind, we will not be able to give to the fullest. We'll never be able to serve to the fullest. Whatever negativity we're that lingers within us is trapped inside the subconscious mind and because the subconscious mind dictates how we think, how we speak and how we act, no matter how good and noble our intentions are, so long as these seeds of negativity uh, remain within us, we will be impelled to act in less than noble ways, less than virtuous ways less than ideal and perfected ways. So the great job of a meditator, the great work of a meditator, is to remove everything that is not natural to the human condition. Yeah? Because of all sorts of unnatural living patterns, unnatural thought patterns, unnatural emotions, unnatural relationships, unnatural you know, environmental stimulus and conditions around us, we've been forced to you know, think, act, and speak because of our conditioning in ways that ultimately don't serve us nor others. So our motivation when we come to these meditation retreats is the, is, is of such a high caliber. And we consider the practice of meditation the utmost act of compassion for all living beings. Because so long as there is impurity and negativity within you, so long are you, are you limited in your capacity to give and to love and to be compassionate. So meditation really becomes the utmost act of compassion. So for as many great things you can do in the world, you can feed the poor, you can educate children, you can you know, go to Africa and help the poor, so many, you know, save animals off the street, so many great things that we can do. All the things that we do in the world unfortunately because of natural law are impermanent no matter how much you feed somebody today they'll be hungry again tomorrow no matter how much medicine you give to somebody that is sick eventually their disease will 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 or a different disease may come back and afflict them no matter how much education you give somebody 
a mundane, a mundane education, eventually, 10, 20 years, they will forget everything that they learned. And when they die, all that knowledge is lost. So even when we try to help the poor and try to do so many great things to help animals and things like this, our efforts are limited simply because the natural law of, of, of Mother Earth and of, of the cosmos as a whole has it that every act is impermanent. Everything that we do doesn't have the capacity to last. Every act of giving is on some level embedded with the process of decay. So even though our noble attempts at giving and serving in this world are very well-intentioned, only when it is done with the utmost of wisdom is it truly fruitful, is it truly capable of serving and, and, and helping somebody in the proper way. So long as our actions are well-intentioned from the heart but are in sync with the highest wisdom of what's actually going on on the level of reality itself, our capacity to give in the world is, is limited. However, when we practice the Dharma, when we come to meditation retreats, when we seek to purify our minds and we teach the Dharma to others, for example, this is really the gift that keeps on giving, as it were. The path of purification is such that the purification that you're undergoing through your, your yoga practice, through your meditation practice, through all your noble conduct and all, all of your lifestyle, has it that as you let go of certain impurities and you elevate your consciousness to a higher level, those negativities, those impurities will not necessarily have the capacity to come back. Sometimes we do some work and then we relapse. But that relapse is temporary because the general trend of spiritual evolution is towards that light that we are. And all the work that we're doing as meditators is of a permanent nature. All this inner purification is awakening the, the consciousness within you, the highest light within you that is ever present, that is ever awake, that is always with you. All that you're doing, and it's permanent, it really is permanent, all you're doing is removing all the barriers to it through your, through your practice. So this act of meditation, this meditation retreat, and all of your spiritual practices are, are, are the most profound acts of giving that you can truly perform. It's, it's an utmost act of compassion that you're undergoing through meditation practice. And so long as you're meditating only for yourself to find some like personal inner peace, you're missing the bigger picture because that inner peace that you're finding, that you're cultivating, is contagious. It has no capacity to be self-contained. It naturally and organically will spread to others. The greater your level of consciousness, awareness, compassion, the more that develops within you, the more contagious it becomes. And inevitably, your friends, your families, your community, your employers, your employees, everyone around you will feel the positive vibrations of your spiritual practice. And this is such a beautiful gift that we can give to the world. And it's such an important thing that we all learn to cultivate. Because in the modern age, there's so much disturbance around us. You know, there's so much suffering 
that is going on on a psychological level. When we look out in the world, so many people are miserable and dissatisfied, even though they really have no reason to be. They have all the luxuries, all the comforts of the world. They have enough food every day, nice place to live, this possession, that possession. They can travel, they can do everything. But inside, there's this void, there's this hole that they're missing. And because of that voidness, because of that darkness inside of them, unconsciously they think, speak, and act in, in ways that are disharmonious, not only for themselves, but to all of us. And because of this, the entire planet has become this... <laughs> The sinkhole, it seems at times, of just miserable people, you know, when there's absolutely no need, it's a paradise, this planet. It has everything we can want and more, but so long as people don't know the Dharma, they don't practice the Dharma, so long we will continue in this downward spiral of negativity, which it seems the modern era is consumed with. I just want to impress upon you the importance of developing this really noble intention through meditation. Secondarily, what I'd like to do today is begin to expose you to the deeper dimensions of the teachings, how to frame your understanding of the Dharma, as well as how to understand the preciousness and the rarity that of human life in your own existence, so that you can use that as a motivating factor in your meditation practice, so that you can learn just how valuable your, your meditation practice is and how much we need to cultivate our spiritual life um, and how much greater intensity we must cultivate if we really want to be free in this life itself. So the Sri Vidya, supreme knowledge of the ultimate aim of human life. Now this particular pathway is a path to liberation. The, the Sri Vidya has for its main focus not the health of the body, not the health of the mind, not the health of this or that, but really the, the ultimate aim of the soul, complete freedom. Our main motivation, our main focus is, is outlining a practice and a process whereby the human spirit, the human condition may be set completely free. This is known as moksha, or the ultimate aim of life. And in the Western um, culture, we're largely lost. Nobody's ever told us that that's actually the aim of life. Mostly as young children, we were told the aim of life is to get married, to have some children, get a dog, get a white picket fence and a mortgage, you know, get a big bank account, travel, grow old, and die. <laughs> and maybe if we're religious to go to heaven and do good along the way, right, so we can get into heaven. That was really, that's the base of the teachings there. And, you know, that has some validity, but largely it's an illusion. And it's largely a process whereby the people that follow this methodology or this pathway are largely dazed and confused. They don't really know what's going on, even though they're trying to be good people and they're really trying their best to, to live to that to their highest capacity. Here in Asia, particularly in India and in the spiritual traditions of India, it's made clear from a very young age that the ultimate aim of life isn't wealth, it's not money, it's not security, it's not having material luxuries and comforts and all of these things, but really to utilize this life for what it was really designed for, to awaken the highest potential within you. And this highest potential is nothing but becoming an embodiment of unconditional love. Really, at the end of the day, that is really why you have been born on this planet. And so long as you're not living in that light, so long as you're not living from this place of unconditional love to all living beings, your life's purpose is yet to be fulfilled. Yeah? And when we begin to understand that, ah, oh, really? That's why I'm here? 
Wonder of wonders. Here I've been looking here and there, trying to figure it all out. And it's laid out very, very clearly. That is really why you're here. And you've been so many different things in this life itself. You're maybe a daughter, maybe you're like a, an aunt, maybe you're your mother, maybe you're uh, you know, a father, maybe you're a brother, maybe you're a lawyer, maybe you're you know, a doctor, maybe you're this or maybe you're that. But you've never once ever considered that the object of my life is not to be any of these things, but to be a Buddha, to be an enlightened one to be an embodiment of wisdom and to be an embodiment of unconditional love. That is the aim of your life and her life and his life and my life and all living beings come to this planet simply to fulfill this mission or to fulfill this ultimate aim. <coughs> Yet, despite the fact that they may or may not be aware of that, so few people that we meet are really at this level of realization, whereby not only have they intellectually understood that I'm here to become fully and completely enlightened, but they, are, they have been living in such a way that is conducted to the process of living in that light at all times. So for those of us that aren't at the level of being completely liberated at this time, it's important that in addition to our meditation practice, the actual application of the Dharma in our daily life through meditation, we also receive a few basic teachings on what the Dharma really is, what the path really is. And the path to liberation is very multifaceted based on the temperaments of different people. Each one of us have different likes and dislikes, different preferences, different ways we understand things, different ways we understand the spiritual life. And for the most part in the Sri Vidya and most of Asiatic Eastern philosophy, we find that the path of liberation is divided into two basic camps. There's the dualistic path and then there's the non-dual teachings. The dualistic teachings and the non-dual teachings. We find this in Hindu Dharma, we find this in Buddha Dharma, we find this also in Jain Dharma, we find this also in Taoism. Many, many places we find it in Eastern philosophy. It's also in the Western teachings of Christ and a few others, but it's, and, and Rumi, places like this, but it's not so explicit. It's not so comprehensive or so clear. It's more encoded and more wrapped in a mystical language that is very, very hard to understand unless you have understood the flavor of the Asian sages who make it very explicit and very clear. Once you have this basic Asiatic foundation, you can go into the world traditions very easily and distill the essence of the non-dual and dualistic paths and all the different teachings of the, of the great masters. Now, the dualistic tradition is often talked about as a gradual path, right? The path, the basic position of dualistic teachings is that here you are, and because you feel less than complete, because you feel like you have some negativity, you have some negative thoughts, negative emotions, you feel some state of dissatisfaction, maybe you feel like you're, you're living a life where you're you know, not living in your highest light, and you feel like you're less than complete in some way, and you're seeking liberation, that we will, based on your temperament, based on your current level of understanding of where you are, we will give you a pathway that takes you step by step from where you are to the ultimate destination to help you get to 
the ultimate aim of life, which is spiritual liberation. This path is often given in a sequential way, where the entire body of teachings is often starting from the gross and works into the very, very, very subtle principles. The path is very long because it's gradual. <laughs> it takes a long, long, long time. Yeah. So this is one approach to the teachings. As a contrast, the non-dual paths and the non-dual teachings are more instantaneous. The basic position that they, they are suitable for is if somebody doesn't feel comfortable being told that they're not full, that they're not complete, that they're less than perfect. If you resonate with the idea or the feeling that you are, you are perfect and that you are complete and that there's absolutely nothing wrong with you, on the most fundamental level of your being, that you're not a sinner, and that there's fundamentally nothing wrong with you, then the non-dual approach is more appropriate. For those that feel like I'm impure, and that I have some work to do, and I need to, you know, go on a journey, and get from where I am now to some time later on, where I will become better than what I am now, and undergo this gradual purification, the dualistic teachings are more appropriate. And what happens is in the Sri Vidya, we have teachings that fall from both camps, based on the temperament and based on the mindset of the individual. As a general rule, only somebody that is living with a lot of uh, what we call sattva, or clarity, or lucidity inside their body-mind, uh, is really capable of, of approaching the non-dual teachings and not becoming confused by them because the non-dual teachings are very diametrically opposed in some ways to the dualistic teachings. And so long as we don't understand which teachings are coming out of which camp, we'll sometimes hear the Dharma and we'll get confused. They said this, but this one said that. This sounds the opposite. This said this, and then it's confusing. You know, cause and effect, no cause, no effect. So many different things are there we sometimes don't understand because we don't understand that these two camps are there. For the most part, because most human beings aren't sattvic by nature, their minds aren't lucid, their minds aren't clear, they're often very restless, very agitated, very disturbed inside, or very lazy and lethargic, what we call tamas and rajas. Most people are more suited towards the dual path because the impurities that they feel are the products, the direct outcome of tamas and rajas. Only a sattvic mind can be full of such great levels of positivity that in actuality there's almost no traces of negative thoughts and negative emotions. And when those traces of negative thoughts and negative emotions aren't allowed to exist in a sattvic mind, then and only then will the non-dual teachings take hold and not be a source of confusion. As a general trend, Anything that has to do with karma yoga, bhakti yoga, or raja yoga, three of the fundamental paths of, of, of yoga, are typically dualistic by nature. This is in terms of both practice and philosophy. Karma yoga says there's something wrong with you. You feel disturbed, you feel agitated, you feel restless, do something, do something positive, generate good karma, generate punya, so that in the future you will have a greater abundance of positivity due to all the positive actions that you're putting into place right now. So the entire pathway of karma yoga is gradual. Do this now, and then in the future, you will see more and more positive effects due to all the good causes that you're putting into motion now. 
Bhakti Yoga also, for the most part, initially starts off as a dualistic paradigm whereby one takes the attitude of a devotee and one seeks to surrender or submit themselves to some higher power. For the most part, people on the devotional path, which are most religious people, Hindus, many uh, devotional Buddhists, particularly the Mahayana school, Christians, uh, Islamic people, um, uh, Jewish people, most of the world's major religions fall under the banner of devotion, of bhakti yoga. And in most of those traditions, the idea of God, or what in India we call Ishwara, is so strong, and they have great devotion for this higher power, this, this creator deity. And for them, the entire path is mostly of submission and surrender and letting go and developing devotion towards this higher power. In the Western religions as a whole, the tendency is to have a dualistic relationship with spirit in such a way that spirit is generally seen as an external agency, some creator deity that one worships, that one bows down to, that one surrenders to, in order that one day they may find proximity to God, they may go to heaven, and then feel like they're near God. Now that's the basic paradigm there. In the Asiatic devotional tradition, it's a little bit more inward, whereby the idea is that God is within me, and God actually is me. The idea is more akin to that that it's possible for the individual soul and the Supreme Spirit, what some people call God, or Ishwara, to merge or unite so that the individual and spirit may become one. And that's actually the same <coughs> principle that we find in the Raja Yoga tradition, whereby the individual yogi is seeking to unite their individual consciousness with the cosmic consciousness. But again, there is a position of duality that's inherent within this particular philosophy. The philosophy of the Raja Yogis, which is also known as the path of Ashtanga Yoga or the Eight Limbed Yoga, is uh, outlined through a philosophy known as Samkhya philosophy. And if any of you have ever studied Samkhya, the basic position there is that Unlike what your common sense would tell you about yoga, that everything is about unity or, or union, this great sage Kapila, who outlined the Samkhya philosophy, what he did is he actually said that there's two principles. One is known as Purusha, the other one is known as Prakriti. Purusha is like spirit and Prakriti is nature. Purusha is like consciousness and Prakriti is like cosmic energy. The basic idea here is actually contrary to what we think about when we think in terms of this word union or unity. The purpose of the Raj Yoga philosophy isn't to unite um, what we can call like um, consciousness and matter, Purusha and Prakriti. It's actually the basic position of Samkhya philosophy is these two are already united and that actually is the problem. Spirit has become enmeshed in matter. And because of this, spirit has become self-identified as a limited body-mind. The entire objective of Samkhya philosophy, Patanjali's yoga system and Ashtanga Yoga Ma as a whole of many sages is to actually induce a separation of these two forces. So it's a little bit contrary to intuition, but this is actually the basic position. We need to there's a dualistic paradigm and we need to separate these two forces. We need to extract spirit, as it were, out of matter. We need not to self-identify as the body-mind, but to identify as pure consciousness. We need to pull Prakriti, cosmic energy, and separate it, segregate it, 
from Purusha, which is consciousness itself, so we may abide as Purusha by itself. Purusha abiding by itself is a state known as Kaivalya. This is another, this is the definition of spiritual liberation in the yoga tradition uh, of the Raja Yogis, of Kapila, Samkhya, Ashtanga, Raja Yoga, all kind of the same camp there. The word instead of moksha that's used in those particular yoga teachings is known as kevalya, or the state of isolation, the state of aloneness. We've isolated or separated consciousness away from matter, so consciousness can be free of the bounds of physical embodiment, of being caught in the world illusion of the cosmos, etc. And it can be standing transcendental or transcendent of the samsara, or the play of creation. So that's the dualistic model that's being uh, held within the Raja Yoga tradition. Within the non-dual camp, we have the Jnana Yoga. So whenever we find the Jnana Yoga teachings, largely they are non-dual. They may have some semblances of duality, but that's only in the beginning stages. For the most part, the non-dual path of Sri Vidya has a, a Jnana Yoga component. And we actually find this dual, non-dual paradigm also within Buddhism. So for those of you that do comparative religion or have studied Buddhism, the same dualistic and non-dual approach will happen there. For the most part, the dual tradition of Buddhism is known as Theravada. The basic teachings of the original Gautama, the Buddha, for the vast majority of what he taught, even though he did teach some non-duality, the majority of what was taught was the path, the gradual path of purification, the, the dualistic path. Yeah? Only later, when the Mahayana Buddhism developed, did the non-dual teachings begin to appear. And inside of that, we had a, a number of different traditions that emerged. So if any of you have heard of the Zen, Japanese Zen tradition, that's in the non-dual camp. If any of you have studied Tibetan Vajrayana teachings, we have something known as Mahamudra and something known as Dzogchen. These Buddhist-based non-dual teachings are, are very, very similar to what we have in the Jnana Yoga tradition of India. As a general rule in the dualistic traditions, the entire path is taught and described as a way of purification. It's really the path of purification, gradual unfoldment, whereby we're moving from the gross to the subtle, from negativity to positivity. It's a path of becoming. Generally, this is a path whereby we, sometime in the future, will become that which we're seeking to be. That is the basic paradigm there. But again, this is happening through gradual unfoldment. Now, the non-dual teachings are focused more on what we can consider the path of perfection. There's no need for purification or techniques of purification once somebody is ready for the non-dual teachings. But to be ready for the non-dual teachings, paradoxically, you would have needed to go through the path of purification first. So this is the general training of a yogi. Even though we can be taught intellectually and philosophically that there's these two camps and these two approaches, and we can be gravitated, we can like the jnana yoga teachings because they seem so much simpler, so much more straightforward, and so much easier on some level, only and only when we're prepared for them, when we've allowed our mind to, to become so pure that there's no semblance of impurity, will we really be able to practice and understand the non-dual path. So as a general rule, almost everyone 
needs to go in this lifetime through the path of purification. Understand it and practice it to the level whereby their mind has been made so lucid and so clear and so sharp through, uh, you know, through all these different practices, through yamas and niyamas, through a lot of asana practice, through a lot of self-purification practices, through um, fasting, through verbal silence, through all this austerity and tapas, long sessions of meditation, intense pranayama work, lots of self-purification, self-purification, only so that we can make the mind calm and quiet and steady enough. Once the mind has been made calm and quiet and all that agitation, all that restlessness has been removed for the mind, then what was once taught on the dualistic path actually becomes a bit of a hindrance, right? If you feel like, I just need to keep on purifying, 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 even though your mind is actually relatively pure and you continue to follow that methodology, it's going to retard your growth. And for that... Because of that recognition, the sages of the jnana yoga discipline understood that they need to do some drastic teachings, some more radical teachings to help people shift, as it were, when they're ready to shift into the non-dual paradigm. And because of this, this dichotomy between the teachings, sometimes we find a lot of contradiction. Yeah? Because what once worked is no longer relevant. And what makes sense here may not make sense for somebody that's on the path of purification. And if we give the teachings of non-duality prematurely to somebody that's on the path of purification, we'll easily confuse them. If all of a sudden you tell somebody you're perfect, you're complete, as you are, there's nothing to do. You're already enlightened. The mind is not prepared to receive that message. Oh, nothing to do. Oh, nowhere to go. Okay, well, maybe I'll just go sit down on my couch, <laughs> get some potato chips, some chocolate bars, <laughs> or some sports, or some movies, do this, and I'm the mind. <laughs> it becomes really, really dangerous, actually, and we can laugh at it now, but it's so common for us as spiritual seekers, without the correct understanding of these two principles in these two camps, to receive non-dual teachings and not be able to clearly comprehend them. Intellectually, we may think that we get them, but clear comprehension is not there. Yeah, and rarely do, do we as teachers and our own teachers ever really give us the non-dual stuff. We want it. It's so wonderful, so great, we're so excited whenever it presents itself. But for the most part, until we're really ready for it, vast majority of teachers in India um, will only discuss the, the dualistic path. They only tell us, develop devotion, do good in the world, do karma yoga, practice intensely, do more sadhana, more sadhana, more, until you, you feel like you can't do any more sadhana, and you're just going to freak out if you're, you have to meditate for another minute more, fast for a little bit longer, deprive yourself of this desire, this desire for longer. Yeah, so, in this entire path, the dualistic path, its primary, the hub, we can say, or, or its primary principle, is the principle of exhaustion. Because so much of the teachings in the dualistic path are about doing something spiritual, do more meditation, do more pranayama, do more asana, do more fasting, do more silence, do more pilgrimage, do more acts of devotion, more rituals, more mantras, more, more, more. Eventually, what that is geared for is to get you in such a flurry of activity that you get to a stage where you snap and you just break. And you're just so tired of doing anything to become more spiritual 
<laughs> you actually just like surrender and, you, and you, God breaks you as it were and you just like give up. And that giving up, that like release is the awakening into the real devotion, into the real surrender, into the real letting go that is the heart of the non-dual path. The real detachment that is talked about, the cultivation of awareness, the cultivation of detachment that we learn in the non-dual path really needs to occur when you're just tired. You're just, you just give up. You see, you wave your white flag and you surrender. <laughs> I give up. There's no nothing more I can do to try to free myself, to try to become more enlightened or more spiritual or more awake. It's just based on exhausting your desire to feel like you need to do something to be enlightened. And then the non-dual teachings appear and they begin to share with you, okay, child, you're perfect, you're pure. In truth, activity is obstructive to liberation. All the noble actions that you've been doing so far are good. They have made your mind calm and pure and noble. But now, now you're ready to let go of all this activity, all this doing, all these impulses that make you feel like you need to do something in order to achieve some otherworldly state, some, some higher realization. And the fundamental teachings then become about letting go of all activity, no matter how noble and spiritual it may seem, and forsaking all activity for the path of being. Rather than being so focused on doing, the emphasis becomes on being, on letting go of the impulse or the need to go here, go there, do this, do that. Everything simply becomes about residing or remaining in your natural liberated state. And your natural and liberated state is actually not different than the state of sattva. A pure mind is a liberated mind. All we need to do is get ourselves through this flurry of noble activity, of intense spiritual practices, to the place where the mind can be calm and tranquil for some extended periods of time without any disturbance. When the mind is free of disturbance, the door to wisdom opens, simply put. And then once wisdom opens, we begin to understand that wisdom isn't a conceptual thing. When we seek to gain wisdom in yoga, we're not trying to gain knowledge or information or understanding in an intellectual way. When we talk about wisdom, wisdom is a non-conceptual experience of reality as it is. Free of the filter of the mind that is judging, categorizing, discerning, that is labeling any of the experiences that are occurring to us in each moment. So when we drop that framework of conceptualization and simply learn to be as we are in this moment and develop great intensity of awareness of what is happening in our own life here and now, rather than being so fascinated with all the mental activity that is associated with our past or all the desires and fantasies we have for the future, and just allow our mind to abide clearly and lucidly in the present moment, Then we come into contact with our natural state. And this is just a state of pure beingness. A way of experiencing, a way of perceiving life and reality that is free of the impulse or the need or the desire to have or to do anything more. Other than to just experience life with great clarity and with great lucidity. And this becomes the path of wisdom. 
living in the present moment in your naturally liberated state, free of <coughs> mental, emotional impurities, free of negativities of any kind, then becomes the wisdom path. And then whenever anything interferes, whenever ideas and concepts, memories, fantasies, desires, all these concepts about what we need in order to be happy arise, we learn to redirect awareness again and again back into the stillness and the silence of a non-conceptual mind. This non-conceptual mind is sattva itself. It is the freedom uh, that opens the door towards the higher states of yoga. When we can abide in our natural state for extended periods of time, then there's no further effort required for you to enter into samadhi or to have kundalini experiences or to become more spiritual in any way. All of those esoteric practices and all those processes will unfold naturally without the kind of self-effort that you've been accustomed to when you're undergoing the strenuous sadhana of the path of purification. So long as we're yearning for anything, for kundalini awakening, for samadhi, for meditation, for this, for some otherworldly experience, and ignoring what's happening to us in this present moment, where we're missing the point, you know, where we're not really following the path, we just think we're on some sort of path, but we're actually just in the mind and in the desires of the mind that have, have been layered with the subtle form of spiritual conceptualization about what the spiritual path can look like and what it should look like based on our ideas and some of the teachings we may have heard about from the, pure, from the, from the dualistic path regarding how to you know, awaken the kundalini, how to, how to do this, how to do that, how to enter into dhyana, how to enter into samadhi, things of this nature. All of these things occur naturally and organically when the mind is made sattvic and pure and the wisdom teachings begin to become part of daily life. We need not concern ourselves with heroic efforts of self-discipline when we have entered the path of wisdom. However, this doesn't mean that we're sitting on the couch and eating potato chips and chocolate bars. When somebody is really ready for the non-dual teachings and they hear the non-dual teachings, some natural impulse takes over. Mother Nature begins to take over. And rather than doing less spiritual practice, they appear to be doing even more than ever before, but not as the doer. From the outside, it appears that somebody that has really been ready to receive the non-dual teachings, that they have heightened their spiritual intensity, they're meditating for longer, they're, they're more still, they're more calm, they're more detached, they're eating less. But this is all happening organically and spontaneously without the kind of willful effort that is required as a Raja Yogi or somebody that's on this path of self-purification. Whenever we hear non-dual teachings and feel like, oh, I understand, and then we get lazy in any way and our spiritual intensity drops in terms of practice, it's a clear sign that we're not ready and we haven't really understood. And this happens very commonly. Sometimes we tell people these non-dual things and it sounds so nice, sounds so beautiful, and then people think, oh, I got it. I understand. The understanding is on an intellectual level, but hasn't integrated itself into a way of life because the surrender isn't complete. Still, the, the ego is still somewhat strong inside of people, and because of that, that, will, that ego is going to 
enter into the picture and start convincing the mind that it understands and there's no further need for austerity or tapas or strenuous effort. And on some level that's true in terms of how one approaches the path internally, but from the outside, their way of life radically changes as they increase the intensity and the volume of their spiritual focus. Yet without that that willful effort, it is happening to them. The spiritual path is just unfolding within them rather than trying to force a process, which is mostly what is happening in the dualistic paradigm. So, as a general rule, when we're talking about these two paths, because our objective is to develop spiritual knowledge as we study the Dharma, it's important to understand that regardless of whether we're taking the dualistic paradigm or the non-dualistic paradigm, that both schools of thought, both philosophies, as it were, are are combating the fundamental enemy of the yogi, which is ignorance itself. Ignorance is the opposite of wisdom, the opposite of knowledge, so it's called as avidya. And in the Vedas, this avidya is associated with three different factors or three different forces that are said to be really the source of ignorance. So as we study the Dharma, we're going to encounter that we need to develop more and more insight and more and more understanding and clear comprehension of the law of karma because currently even though we don't necessarily want to admit it we have a certain ignorance regarding karma even though this word is commonly used in the modern day very very few people understand karma clearly and because they don't understand karma clearly all sorts of ignorance exists in their in their mind we also need to begin to develop understanding of the Dharma itself. Most people don't understand what the ultimate aim of life is. They don't understand how the path, the spiritual path unfolds. They don't understand the value of the path. They don't understand so many things about spirituality. So what we're going to want to do is over the next few days, I'll share with you some insights that will help remove some of the ignorance regarding the path, the Dharma. And ultimately, Ignorance of reality itself is the fundamental enemy. Through meditation, we're trying to develop clear insight, clear comprehension into what the ultimate nature of reality truly is. In the Vedas, reality is termed as Brahman. Brahman means the supreme consciousness, what we sometimes call as reality, the supreme and developing insight into Brahman is ultimately the aim of yogic practices. And ultimately, Sri Vidya is sometimes known as Brahma Vidya. Now, Brahma Vidya, Sri Vidya, they have their synonyms, so the knowledge of Brahman, knowledge of reality, is known as also Sri Vidya. Now, because people don't understand karma clearly, what ends up happening is they don't have a clear understanding of cause and effect. People don't understand how forces of nature are interconnected. They don't understand that certain causes give certain effects and how the interplay of cause and effect work. Because of an ignorance of karma, people don't understand the results of their action, the results of their own personal karmas. They don't understand that everything that is happening to them is due to their own karma. And many people don't have a clear comprehension regarding 
that every single thing that they experience in their life is simply due to their own previous action. The law of cause and effect is a universal law that has for its main position for every action there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. And karma is energy, karma is action. For every cause there's going to be an effect. So therefore everything that we're experiencing now is some sort of effect of some previous cause. And because the cycle of karma occurs in such a way that it is not limited to the body-mind that we're currently experiencing. Within the teachings of karma, we're going to encounter the theory of reincarnation, the theory of life after death and what happens after death, and how karma carries on from one birth to another. And once we begin to piece that all together, we begin to understand that, wow, really everything that's happening to me now is simply the outcome of my own past action. Something that I did in the past, for better or worse, is been put into motion to give the effect that I'm experiencing at any given moment. And so long as people don't clearly understand karma, a couple of psychological trends will develop in them. The first is that of victimhood. There's no personal accountability for their action and they will always feel like they're a victim to circumstance rather than understanding clearly that they're a victim to their own karma. That something they had done before has been the reason why they're experiencing things as they're experiencing now for better or worse. And because of that victimhood, there's always going to be this tendency towards blame. There's always something wrong with the outside. There's always something wrong with, the, with, with somebody else. And this has happened to me. Some external agency has caused and been the source of my sorrow, my suffering, my dissatisfaction. And then this cycle of blame and victimhood become a very, very great trapping for the mind. Yeah. Even though we may think we aren't like that, there's certain subtle parts of ourselves that, that play out in that way. Uh, some of the ignorance regarding karma often manifests in times of great pressure and great stress in our lives and we're experiencing very strong emotions and things like this where it feels like somebody has harmed us or somebody has said something or done something that has caused us pain then this ignorance begins to manifest as we react you know, to the pain or the discomfort that we're feeling so developing insight into karma becomes an essential part of our yogic training Along the way, I'm beginning to understand which actions bring benefit and which actions bring harm is also of utmost importance. For this, we learn the yamas and the niyamas, the, the yogic precepts, nonviolence, truthfulness, etc., and use these actions as a base whereby we can generate more and more what we call good karma or merit or punya so that we can bring more positive events into our field of experience in the future. Now, as I was mentioning before, when somebody doesn't have a clear comprehension of karma and the law of karma, they will not understand that reincarnation is a fact. <laughs> and I'm sorry to be so blunt about it. If, if you don't believe in reincarnation, forgive me. I don't mean to superimpose anything upon you. However, I do also appreciate that we are in Bali, that we are in a Hindu island, that you're probably traveling halfway around the world to open and expand your mind and, 
be open to new possibilities of thinking and feeling and experiencing. So if you don't believe in reincarnation, there's no need. But keeping an open mind to it is highly beneficial because without being open to it, you'll never really understand karma. It's impossible for the law of cause and effect to operate you know, simply within the confines of one human existence because the actions that you put into place now, if they don't have time to give effect before this body dies, where do they go? They have to go somewhere into the cosmos. And for this, we have the law of reincarnation, which associates the, all the causes, all the desires, all the volitions, all the will that you superimpose in your life and have it associate or attach itself to the subtle energy body, the, the, subtle, um, the subtle energy body that um, is attached and is part and parcel of the physical body, but is that which at the moment of death leaves and separates from the physical body, enters a non-physical dimension of existence, whereby carries its karmas with it until it finds another appropriate form in which you may incarnate. That form may be physical, or it may be in a light body or, or some other non-physical existence, whereby it continues to feel the effects of the previous causes that it has put into motion. We'll talk a lot about that, I believe, tomorrow. Along the way, when we begin to develop this understanding of what may happen based on the law of karma in, in the future and what happens at the time of death, we'll also begin to understand the yogic perspective on what we consider fortunate rebirths and unfortunate rebirths and how the actions that we're engaging in now really are paving the way for so much of what may happen to us once this limited temporal physical body ends. And for this, the yogic tradition has a cosmological model of 14 different planes or realms or dimensions of existence that we're going to study just a little bit to give you an understanding of what it may look like um, at the time of death and what happens to the soul and the soul's journey once it leaves this physical body and how we can begin through our yogic practices to influence what our next existence can look like and which of the 14 realms we may end up in. Now, because of an ignorance of the path of Dharma, most human beings are misusing their life. They don't know the preciousness and the rarity of their human life. And because of this, they're misusing so much of their time, so much of their energy, pursuing all sorts of nonsense and wasting this valuable and precious human birth. So we'll discuss this in the days to come. Because there's a lack of understanding of the Dharma, people don't understand liberation to be the ultimate purpose or aim of life. Most people, even if they do intellectually understand that or believe that it's possible, very few people will accept that it's possible for them. They'll often think that liberation and the teachings are for somebody else, that I'm not, not possible myself to be self-realized. Along the way, because the Dharma is part of a living wisdom tradition passed on from teacher to student, understanding the subtleties of the student-teacher relationship is critical. And there's so many subtle nuances that happens when we find a teacher and we take the role of a student in order to benefit ourselves to the greatest in terms of receiving the Dharma. Because we don't understand the path, we don't understand how to practice, because we have never really received a lot of teachings on Dharma, we don't understand that in addition to the physical body, the yogic 
and you, all living beings, but primarily the yogis and yoginis have the capacity to influence and to work with their subtle energies that make a part of the subtle body, sometimes known as the dream body or the etheric astral body. And because we don't understand the path, we don't often understand what the obstacles to practice can look like and what their appropriate remedies can be. So over the next few days, I'll try to describe some of these to you, as will Lily. And because of this fundamental ignorance of Brahman, the ignorance of reality itself, we don't really understand the world appearance as we're experiencing it. The Brahman is rarely talked about outside the context of non-dual teachings. We rarely encounter that word when we're talking about bhakti yoga or raja yoga. The lingo there, the, the verbiage that's used is often different than the word Brahman itself. When we approach the non-dual teachings, we get a lot of uh, emphasis on reality, on Brahman. And we find that in addition to Brahman, there's this counterpart known as Maya, which means illusion, the world appearance. And because we don't understand the concept of Maya, we become so attached and so embedded in this material existence that we don't really understand that it is just simply an appearance. According to the Jnana Yoga teachings, the entire world is like a dream. And much like a dream, there has no fundamental existence, has no permanent reality in of itself. To us, it feels so vividly real. But to a yogi, to an enlightened sage, this world is often thought of as very unreal, like a dreamlike illusion. There's many, many parallels that modern quantum physics has found that can help us understand the paradox of Maya on the level of a scientific worldview, mostly on the level of understanding that everything we see around us isn't really what we think it is. On the atomic quantum vibration, it's just pure energy. And most of what we consider to be dense physical matter is just open space, which is, you know, little pockets of, you know, proton, electron, neutronic energies, etc. So even though we perceive things to be very dense and very physical and very real, it's all just pure energy. And none of this energy is really permanent. It's constantly fluctuating, constantly vibrating on the quantum level. And in the Vedic teachings, we have certain parallels that we can discuss. But basically, everything is to be guarded as unreal. Whatever our senses are telling us isn't actually what's going on on the deepest levels of reality. So we'll talk maybe a little bit about Maya. We also will need to begin to understand how to practice what's known as vichara or inquiry, self-inquiry, and how the path of self-inquiry becomes the gateway towards uh, Brahman, towards coming into contact with reality itself. We're going to learn uh, the technique of self-inquiry, if you haven't learned it already, um, in about, not tomorrow, but the day after, we'll begin to, to self-inquire and to begin to develop this inner investigation of our natural state and the source of our own existence. And because we don't have many understandings of Brahman, we don't necessarily understand what wisdom truly is and how to work to develop wisdom in a non-dual way. And along the way, as we learn more and more about the path and Brahman, we're going to talk, I believe, in maybe three or four days about the different meditative absorptions. And the majority of what I'll teach 
on the third or fourth day in the evening sessions will help you understand how the process of meditation unfolds once you began the process of using the breath, mantra, or self-inquiry as the base of meditation and how concentration develops and matures into what is known as dhyana or the meditative absorptions. So there's a lot of subject matter. What I wanted to do today is just give you a large overview of the path. We didn't go into great detail uh, on many of these things, but I want to share with you what we'll be discussing over the next four or five days together. And little by little, starting tomorrow, uh, we'll start dissecting the Dharma, Karma, Brahman, and beginning to develop greater insight in specific areas of the teachings. Uh, I can't promise I'm going to cover all of this. I'll probably only just touch a few points here and there, and we'll see how far we can get. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we invite you to visit www.blooming-lotus-yoga.com backslash drops of nectar to learn more through Ramananda's books, articles, online courses, or by attending retreats. May you be happy, peaceful, and free.